beyond the qualifications, we talked about meditating on our qualifications. What are some of the pluses to be, I, I hate this phrase, but I'm gonna use it, uh, next level leaders? Is that all right, Anna? I, I would be immediately suspicious of anyone who used a phrase like that. <laughs> so you're right to be suspicious of me using that phrase, but hopefully I can, uh, I, I can earn it. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I read this book on, um, it was called The QB, and it was on the, the world of private quarterback coaching. There was this guy, actually his name was George Whitfield, which I thought was really interesting. Um, <laughs> it was kind of, without the, he didn't have the E, it was, it was, it was spelled Whitfield. Um, and it, it covered him and kind of like the rise of these private, exactly as it sounds, quarterback coaching. There was a, a group of guys, including George Whitfield in California, who, I don't know, 30 years ago or whatever it was, um, saw that there were these rich guys who would pay for their sons to have um, private golf coaches or tennis coaches. Uh, well, certainly, he, you know, he reasoned there would be some rich guys who would see, want their son to be the next Joe Theismann and, you know, uh, you know Roger Staubach or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I guess so. Well, I'm trying to put that age in the right. And, you know, 30 years ago, who are they aspiring to be? Joe Montana. Um, and um, so he created this world of private quarterback coaching, which became somewhat lucrative and kind of then it actually changed the way even the NFL um, conceives of the quarterback position and the way the quarterback position is coached. And it also created this whole wave of like quarterback camps and things. So the Manning brothers have their own camp, and there's different people who have these different camps. And in fact, uh, one of the elders at our church was an aspiring NFL quarterback at one time, um, you know, tried out for the Seahawks. And he, and he went to some of these camps, so I was getting some of the inside scoop. He played ping pong with Johnny Menzel. I was like, I want to know, what was Johnny Menzel like as a ping pong player? Uh, he was pretty good, by the way. Um, so I, I got some, some insight into the end of the world. But anyway, I found the book really fascinating. Um, Trent Dilfer, who was an NFL quarterback, has his own camp as well. And Dilfer had this list. He was basically trying to explain the difference between what he calls an elite quarterback and just a talented quarterback. So how does, you know, what makes someone elite? And he says it's beyond just the athletic ability. The talented quarterback or, you know, anyone who gets a job, even if it's as a backup or a third stringer in the NFL, has a good arm. I mean, there's a reason they're in that job. But there's also a reason why they're the third stringer right, and why they're trying to work into the first role. And even among the starting quarterbacks across the NFL, not all of them, Dilfer would say, would qualify as an elite quarterback. What separates the best of the best from the rest? Well, he created this list. that He called it the dude qualities. I know it's very sexist. Um, we'll just call it next level qualities well, or dude and dudette qualities, I guess we should say. But he called it dude qualities. Um, I, I used the list. I co-opted the list. Uh, in my book, Gospel Driven Ministry, which is aimed at those who want to be pastors. So I still called it dude qualities. Um, but I, it, it's not, you know, we don't have to reserve it just for men. Dude and dude at quality. So here are some of the things um, that Dilfer talked about that I think have some kind of correlation. Um, certainly there's issues of preparedness, uh, the amount of time that you spend sort of in, um, in preparation for it. So the elite quarterbacks, he says, um, understand that the game is mental as, as well as physical. So they spend time uh, watching game film and analyzing so they can, you know, begin to... Uh, um, he told one story, or, or, or the author of the book told some story, about the guy who uh, was new to the Patriots team and was trying to uh, get to the um, facility earlier than Tom Brady. 
and he kept backing up an hour. So he, he said, I went at, you know, at 7 a.m., and Brady was already there. So he was like, well, I'm going to beat Brady. And he, he got there at 6 a.m., and Brady was already there. The next day he was like, well, I'm, he got there at 5 a.m., and Brady was already there. And then he's like, I, I'm not going to out early you know, Tom Brady the thing. And we all know by now that football for Tom Brady is basically religion. It's, you know, it's an issue of idolatry. But there's a level of commitment of preparation. You know, he tells stories about Peyton Manning taking, you know, tapes home. People can't find tapes because, you know, Manning's got all the game tape at his house and he's watching it in the off hours. That, you know, that sort of thing. Um, one of the dude qualities that he lists, I think, is um, a good correspondence for ministry, especially if we tweak it a little bit, is being able to see the whole field, right? The talented quarterback is looking, like, if you know anything about, you know, the running plays, you've got several, you've got a, a succession of who you're looking at in your options, and you, you know, depending on the quarterback, you're looking at either a particular route that's being run as your first option or your favorite receiver, no matter what the route is, right? So Mahomes is maybe looking at Travis Kelsey, number one, like he knows where Kelsey's going to be. If he's covered, he moves on to where the second guy. And it's a split second thing for them. But the idea is you're beginning to see the whole field. Well, talented quarterbacks sometimes get flustered. Uh, obviously, it depends on if you've got a good offensive line. I don't want to get into the football wheels. You know weeds here, but uh, that you have time to do all this. But the good quarterbacks are, be, are seeing how the defense is moving. They can change the you know, call at the line because of how the defense is organized, those sorts of things. Being able to see the whole field and not just be reactive in the moment. This is really important for ministry because so often when you're in, especially if you're in a ministry crisis, um, if you're in a very trying time or hard time, very often you can't see beyond two feet in front of you, so to speak. You're just reacting to what is happening. People are criticizing or someone is in need. And very often we can kind of get slumped down into a kind of despair or a discouragement that's hard to climb out of because all we see is the immediate hurt or the immediate crisis. We don't see beyond. I like to call it the thicket. When you're in the thicket and you just see the weeds, you're in the tall grass, right? You're in the thicket. All you see is the thicket. And when that's all you see, especially in a succession of days, you can begin to think, um, especially emotionally, you begin to think that the thicket is all there is. And this is where a lot of you know, um, folks, they jump ship or they give up or they just lose heart. And in, in, in a way, they actually become disempowered for the thicket experience because they lose heart in the midst of thinking this is all there is. You have to be able to know, not just, you know, Jesus is good and he's coming back, but even in just the span of ministry, the thicket is not all there is. There is a pasture land some, somewhere outside the thicket. If you're aspiring to pastoral ministry um, in particular, the, the experience um, of kind of year three of a new pastorate or a first pastorate, is usually where things begin, you know, get real, and you actually see who you're pastoring. The honeymoon's over, right? They loved you at first, um, but three years in, your kids are not as cute as they were when you were interviewing. Or I mean, I don't know what it is, but the gloss is over. They see who you are. You see who they are. That's usually when guys are beginning to think like, maybe I'm not called. And sometimes it's even beyond. Maybe I'm not called to this church. Sometimes they're thinking, maybe I'm not called to ministry. Um, for some reason, we have this idea that if we're called to something, it's supposed to be comfortable or it's supposed to be easy. But I think also part of it is we don't last long enough to get to the pasture. Um, every pastor I know who's pastored for 20-some years or more has a story of the thicket and, 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 and multiple thickets. 
And in the midst of those wondering, should I leave? Should I bail? Am I not the guy? Have I outlasted? You know, and now they're in a season of such sweetness, which isn't to say that, that ministry suddenly becomes comfortable, so to speak, but there's a pasture land beyond it. And it's, it's good to remember that, to see the whole field. Good ministry leaders play the long game in ministry. They have a, an ability to be patient, to process through potential ramifications of their decisions. You're not just in the moment making a decision. So there is a sinful passivity or indecisiveness. I'll talk about that shortly. But sometimes you're just, it just needs to be done and you panic and you're getting things done and you're not seeing, okay, if I do this, what's gonna happen next? And it doesn't mean, let me be clear, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that thing. It just means you shouldn't do that thing ignorant of what's gonna come after. Be prepared. Okay, I know this is the right thing to do. It's going to have a ripple effect um, relationally. It's going to have a ripple effect systemically in our church. Um, It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that thing if it's the right thing to do. It just means you need to be prepared for what's coming on down the line. You're you're playing the long game. You're seeing the whole field. Um, Be slow when it's uh, it's time to be slow. Don't act out of panic. Don't be reactive. Make good, proactive decisions without being rash or simply putting out fires. Um, most of the, um, if not all of, you know, kind of pastoral insights that I have have come from essentially stepping on the landmines. Uh, <laughs> um, and I wish that I had the two, I mean, that's, uh, that's one kind of wisdom to look back and go, I know what not to do now. But there's also the wisdom of seeing, I think there might be a landmine there. I think there might be a landmine there. Um, and you know, wisely circumnavigating if you need to, or being prepared, having the right armor on if you, gotta, if you have to step on that landmine. The next level leader is one who is engaged in the trenches and the, and the foxholes, yes, but is also able to keep an eye on the big picture. He measures ramifications of actions. He or she is not pushed into passivity or impotence by setbacks or negativity. He expects it, assesses it, factors it into the plowing and the planning. Um, secondly, resilience. Resilience. Um, you could phrase this as simply as having a thick skin. Soft heart, thick skin. I know that's kind of a cliche. I didn't make that up, but it's a, I think, you know, there's, there's truth to that. Soft heart, thick skin. In the dude qualities, uh, Dilfer talks about the difference between the elite quarterback and the others is the elite quarterback, after he's down, Right? They're down two scores, and he just threw an interception. He's not happy about it, but he's ready to get back out on the field. He's like, we, we've got to come back. We've got to fix this. He's, he's ready to go back out there. He says the others, they, they throw that interception, and it's like they've lost in their heart before the you know, clock is at zero. He's, they're, in essence, they've already, he's already given up. There's no way I can come out of this. He's so downcast. It's not just he's sad that it happened. He's so downcast that there's no coming back from it. He's not going to dig out of that hole. Um, this is the kind of thing battling discouragement in, in, in ministry. So it doesn't mean being happy about sad things. It doesn't mean that we're not discouraged about discouraging things. It just means, do we have a sense of resilience? We can keep going. God's good. He's faithful. We can keep, we can put one foot in front of the other. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful, but we can keep going. We don't have to give up. We don't have to throw in the towel. We don't have to shrink back. Uh, a lot of ministry leaders are, are feelers, myself included. 
Uh, we're laid low by conflict. We're laid low by relational tension or insults. I, I mean, just the smallest insult. I mean, if I get just a whiff of someone doesn't like me, I mean, I'm thinking about that for hours. Um, you know, it's kind of, I have the, the Costanza syndrome. I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld, but George Costanza like, wants everyone to like him, you know? That one girlfriend that Jerry has that doesn't like him, and he becomes, it's like the whole episode is George's mission to make this girl like him for, what, for no reason, just that he can't not be liked, right? I was like, I have that. I'm like, why don't they like me? What did I, I think? Um, and it's just, it's very common among ministry leader types, of course, um, that we're people pleasers. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's as, that's as big a problem as the ministry leader who doesn't give a crap about what anybody thinks. Um, and it's just plowing ahead, you know, kind of bulldozing his way through, you know, everything. Um, they're just opposite issues. Um, opposite issues that are actually have a similar root and just kind of a, a self-centeredness and, um, you know, self-focus. So good leaders centering on the gospel are not unfeeling bulls in a china shop, right? But they do see adversity as an opportunity and they don't get sidelined by setbacks. They're able to recover from discouragement more enthusiastically and confidently. Um, there's almost nothing worse, in my estimation, than an unfeeling, uh, uncaring pastor, but pretty close is a sullen, whiny, sad sack pastor, a self-pitying pastor. <laughs> so when you're hurt or disappointed, ask yourself, do you tend to retreat into self-pity? Do you tend to lay low? Um, one of the best uh, uh, encounters I had with, uh, with Ray Ortland was a, a lunch. I remember we were having um, the Mexican buffet at Cancun restaurant. And the, my church plant was not going well, and I was complaining about all, all sorts of things. I was just kind of licking my wounds in front of him. And in the middle of the lunch, Ray goes, you know, Jared, this, this reminds me of, uh, of Gideon. And I, and I was like, you know, in my head I was thinking, what is he talking about? And I was just like, yeah, it reminds me of Gideon too. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like, why don't you tell me how it reminds you, and we'll see if we're on the same page. You know? I, I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, <laughs> He said, you know, Gideon was afraid of the Midianites, and he was laying low in, in, in the wine press, trying not to be seen. He was scared, and the angel of the Lord showed up, and the angel of the Lord said, um, said to Gideon, who was hiding, uh, hello there, mighty man of valor, you know, <laughs> uh, for Gideon was kind of like, is there someone else in the pit with, you know, who are you looking at? Um, I mean, that, I just, that, that, that stuck with me, the ability to, even in my fear, even in my pity, to see that the Lord sees me through this, you know, the revisionist history of the gospel. I am more than a conqueror, actually, because of him who loves me. Um, I, I can even be led to the slaughter every day, like sheep, you know, be led to the slaughter. But in him, I am more than a conqueror. Nothing can separate me from his love. And because that's true, even if I'm alone or even if I just feel alone, I can take adversity head on uh, because God is on my side. I can go back on the field right after I threw an interception. I can, I can go at it. Uh, ministry is not easy. Um, if it is easy, it's likely that you know, we're not doing it right in some sense. Um, it, it takes a soft heart and a thick skin. Uh, but sort of the next level leaders cultivate a sense of resilience, of, of perseverance, endurance in the midst of hardship. Uh, number three, um, take initiative. Taking initiative. The truth is, uh, wherever you followed God's call to is where God wants you to lead from. 
So wherever ministry has taken you, God has appointed you to be that person in that ministry context. Um, I was um, coaching some guys during the COVID pandemic. Um, I, I do a ministry coaching thing uh, twice a year, cohort, online cohort. And um, the guys that I had during the COVID, um, I, I felt bad for them and for myself because it's not like I had any experience leading through a pandemic. So it's not like I'd be like, guys, I'm glad you're here. I'm ready to coach you on how to survive this thing. <laughs> I would show up and be like, what are you guys doing? Is there anything I can use on my next cohort? You know, uh, What are you finding that works? Uh, but one thing that I could remind them of, what I just saw is just to be an encourager. And, you know, certainly their, you know, ministry didn't change entirely during, you know, the COVID season uh, in terms of um, the things that, you know, the scriptures call us to do. Um, you know, but one thing that I, 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 I've, you know, thought it was important to remind them was to say, we did not see this coming, right? You keep hearing things like it's unprecedented and all that sort of deal. Uh, it's actually not unprecedented in church history. It's unprecedented for our experience, but there's been times in, in church history that have, they've gone through pandemics and epidemics and things. So, uh, But in any event, we didn't see it coming. We would not have planned it, but the Lord saw it coming. And not only did the Lord see it coming, he wanted you to be in your role when this thing hit. He saw you, he put you in the crosshairs of this thing. So even if in your wisdom you would not have planted a church, my brother, you know, he started his church, uh, he launched his church plant right like the month before suddenly COVID became a thing. Um, and he was like, man, if I, you know, um, could have planned this better, I would have. And it's like, well, the Lord planned it. Like he knew it was coming. He knew you were going to plant a church. He decided you were going to be a COVID church planner. And for anyone who was in ministry leadership, in church leadership during COVID, he decided you would be the person in your role during that time. And you, you take us out of the pandemic. Um, you know, anytime I'm sort of like feeling really um, burdened, scared isn't the right word, but just um, laid low by something going on in our church and I'm sitting around the table with the elders and we're all just kind of scratching our chin about this thing that's going on and um, getting dangerously close to feeling sorry for ourselves. Um, I just have to remind myself, like, the Lord put us in this role to lead. Uh, and, and, and the church affirmed that, actually. Um, but we're the ones in leadership for this time. And we can have all of the confidence. Yes, humility. Yes, meekness. Yes, all the biblical qualifications. But we can have all of the um, confidence and boldness as being in that position um, should give us. So whatever role he's called you to, and gifted you for, whatever you know, calling you have, walk in that calling, regardless of what's going on. Be the one to take ownership. Um, some coaching that I give to new or young pastors, especially young pastors, they walk into churches with everyone's older than them, um, and they feel very sort of conspicuous uh, about their age, and people are going to look down on me because I'm you know, 23 years old and I'm trying to lead a church or whatever it is, and I was like, you know, man... Uh, in some respects, that's just going to happen until you get a little bit older. That's just going to you know, be a thing that young people face. But in other respects, if, they're, if they've called you to be their pastor, man, act like it. When you walk into a room, be the pastor. Make decisions that the pastor would make. You know, don't apologize for being in a role that they have affirmed you to be in. There's a, a kind of growing up into maturity that you just own the calling you've got and um, you know, flex out into the position you have. And a lot of times that means taking initiative, making decisions, being the one, um, you know, in the role that you're in because there's nobody else. It's you. 
You're the person in that role. No one is charged with taking your leadership position or making your leadership decisions but you. So good leaders don't wait for someone else to do their job or to make their job easier. They get up, they suit up, they do the next right thing. Uh, passivity isn't good for any Christian, but it can be debilitating and toxifying for, uh, for ministry. Uh, lead your family, lead your team, lead your church. Be the person that God has positioned you uniquely to be. Show initiative. Uh, number four, um, this was not one of the dude qualities from Trent Dilfer for elite quarterbacks, but it is one, I think, for ministry leadership, which is emotional intelligence. For some reason, Dilfer didn't think that was important for quarterbacks. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> emotional intelligence. Um, yeah, having an EQ, I think, is part of uh, the dude and dudette qualities for ministry leadership. Uh, emotional intelligence is one of those intangibles becoming rare among American uh, ministry leaders. We like strong personalities. We like sort of the fiery pulpiteers, the dynamic speakers. We like the theologically rigorous thinkers, and those are all good things. But we're shocked sometimes when those leaders say something astoundingly insensitive um, or relationally stupid. We wonder, how could they get such a thing wrong? Well, maybe being a really smart person does not make someone emotionally smart, right? Um, one of the things that you, you discover, too, is um, uh, some of the guys in positions like mine, so not necessarily pastors, but pastors, too, uh, but guys who, like, write and speak and they're, you know, they, uh, they're some of the most socially awkward people you ever met, um, Myself included, I, I'm pretty socially awkward, I think. Uh, you know, part of it's just my introversion, and others is the people-pleasing, and other times I don't know how to get out of conversations. I don't, I don't know if everyone resonates with that. Like, how do you end it, you know? I'm glad to be in it, uh, but then it's like, is, do, is, does this just have like a natural wind down? Or um, My wife is the opposite. She's the most socially adept, extroverted, and so she'll rescue me from time to time, but she also is like, gets embarrassed because we'll be in a conversation. I'm done, and I'll just be like, I'm going to go over here now. Like, I literally will say something like that, and she'll just be like, what? what? <laughs> that was, I was like, well, I didn't know how to get out. I don't know what to say. How do you end a conversation? Right? So there's that, and then there's, like, emotional intelligence or emotional um, unintelligence, I suppose, which is lacking the intuition to know how to read a room to know the impact of the things that you're saying on, on, on others. Um, this is actually is devastating, I think, um, in, the, uh, in the pastoral role, but as, uh, especially like in, in the counseling room, where the counselor is essentially um, treating the person as a project um, or like, you know, I'm going to prescribe a Bible verse as almost like, a, um, you know, pushing buttons that's going to fix your issue. I see you as a problem to be fixed rather than as a soul to be cared for. Um, and sometimes that's, that's not even a matter of like the philosophy of biblical counseling. Sometimes that's just the counselor. You can have the right philosophy, so to speak, but if you don't have any emotional intelligence, you don't have any empathy, you're not a good listener, um, you begin to treat the person as if they're a problem to be fixed. Um, let me see, where am I? Uh, emotionally stunted or emotionally um, stupid leaders are awkward around people's feelings. They're squeamish around people's hurts. They're unsympathetic to people's fears. This is why we, we must insist, for instance, that our pastors actually be pastors. 
uh, preacher, theologian, must be a subset of the office of shepherd. Um, I think preaching is the most important task of the pastor, being able to teach. Um, the diaconate was established so that the apostolic ministry could focus on prayer and ministry of the word. So ministry of the word, um, uh, including preaching, is, is a central task. Uh, but it's not the whole of the pastoral task. And there's a reason why the, the office itself is uh, um, el, um, elder. Um, the, the office is assigned the task of shepherding. Pastoring is shepherding. Um, in in First Peter, it, this is why I like First Peter's list of qualifications. Uh, uh, Peter's list of qualifications in First Peter chapter five. Most folks will say the biblical qualifications for eldership are First Timothy three and Titus one, and they are, but they forget First Peter five. And there's actually a little exposition. So Peter doesn't just give us a list; he actually sort of gives us an exposition of the qualifications. And he says, "Shepherd the flock of God that is among you," which is super helpful um, because he's basically saying like. You've got to be in the thick of the sheep if you're going to be a pastor. You can't be a detached person, a personality. You can't be an ivory tower kind of personality. You have to be among the people. This is certainly true for just ministry leadership in, in general as well. Um, sometimes people will say that, that this is a feature of personality type, emotional intelligence. That's someone, you know, extroversion versus introversion or... Um, I don't know, Enneagram numbers or whatever. I don't know what all the numbers are, but you know, sometimes you hear people say, well, I'm a five, so you know, I don't really deal with people or whatever it is. I just, I'm a sage or something. Um, you're like, well, that's not an excuse to be a jerk, right? It's not an excuse to be, to be you know, it's not an excuse to be um, unsympathetic with, with people. Um, I think personality type really has no bearing on emotional intelligence. Uh, it can if you're indulging your personality type as a reason either uh, on the introverted side to avoid people or the extroverted side to use people. Um, there's ditches uh, in relation to that. And just as I said, you know, the introvert's uh, ditch is that you're just avoiding people. Or you're you know, saying, I, you know, I'm going to be in my study, you know, reading and, and learning and writing and not all, all that sort of thing. Um, the, danger, the ditch for the extrovert is that they're on the surface with a lot of people getting fired up by engaging with a lot of people, but they're not, it's always an inch deep. They don't really actually, um, and some of the most um, emotionally unintelligent pastors I've known were actually extroverts. Um, they glad-handed, they worked the room, they're good at schmoozing, but they didn't really care for people. And actually when people began to actually open up or confess sin or, or you know, share what's really going on in the mess of their lives, it's kind of like, uh, that's not really what I was in this for. I just wanted to kind of you know, chit-chat with you and make you feel good. So we talked about some superficial type stuff. So there's ditches on either side that we need to be careful of. I don't think personality type really factors into whether someone's emotionally intelligent or not. And in fact, sometimes um, introverts can be more emotionally intelligent because they tend to think more deeply in solitude and those sorts of things. They also, they usually have fewer friends than extroverts, but they go deeper with those friends. I, I don't know about you, if, if you're an introvert, if you resonate with this or not. Um, I'm an introvert. I sometimes, um, um, I can do it, but it's taxing for me to be in a room with people I don't know. I, I want to be friendly. I want to make conversation, but it costs me something. Like I, I have to re, you know, kind of rest from, you know, from that. My wife, other introvert, you know, extroverts I know, like they get fired up from that. It actually fills them up. To, for me, it, it, it drains me. I don't have the same experience if I'm like sitting around 
um, you know, the campfire with like my best friends in the world. In fact, once a year, twice a year, there, you know, there's three or four of my oldest friends uh, from Texas. We get together. We stay up all night. And I, I don't get tired. I mean, you know, other than, you know, every year gets harder because I get older. And, but we'll start at 7 p.m. At 5 a.m., we're like, let's go get IHOP, right? And I wanted to keep going. I'm like, man, I wish we could do, I, I'm sad when it's over. There's something about going deeper with a few. So in, in some ways, introverts can actually be more emotionally intelligent because they go deeper in their relationships, even if they don't have as many, um, perhaps. But at the same time, neither of us, introverts or extroverts, get a pass on, um, on EQ. Uh, the bottom line is, if you do not love people, you shouldn't be in ministry, right? Uh, if you're a Christian, you should love people. Uh, but if you don't love people, you shouldn't be in ministry. Um, and this means actually loving them, not simply loving what people do for you or enjoying the attention of a crowd. Um, sometimes I think this guy's a pastor because he just likes talking and having people hear him. Or this guy's a church planter because he just likes building things right? Um, you actually have to love people. You actually have to engage with people and have some um, EQ. Um, okay, let me do, let's see. Let me talk about um, some components of gospel-driven leadership. Um, here's another list. Four components of gospel-driven leadership. So we just talked about the dude and dudette qualities for next-level leadership. That makes up the disposition of good leadership. Here I want to share some hallmarks of leadership practice. There's, there'll be some sort of connection and, and, and overlap for some of them. Um, there's a lot more that could and, and should be said, uh, but I prioritize these four um, that I think can be driven by the gospel. The first, similar to, to initiative taking, is just decisiveness. Decisiveness. Um, leaders who are overly concerned about their own protection or reputation will grow passive over time. Um, but the steamroll leadership is not your only alternative. There is a good taking of initiative that comes from gospel confidence that leads to a decisiveness. When you know who you are in Christ and you can adequately meditate on your union with him uh, and, and thus your security with him, you can take appropriate leadership steps. Um, if you consistently let those not in leadership positions take initiative, they become the real leaders, not you. So don't be afraid to be decisive. I remember this dynamic when I first got to my last church. Um, we did not have a plurality of elders. It was a solo pastor model, and I became the solo pastor, and there was a, a board of deacons and deaconesses, and they were in, in essentially the de facto leaders of the church. And so what happened was the way the relationship or dynamic was set up between me and them was every month I would go to the deacons meeting, and I would kind of present my pastor's report of like, this is what I've been doing for the past month, here's who I met with, you know, uh, it became sort of a, I'm looking for approval kind of relationship. I want them to say, good job, pastor. You, you're, you're a good pastor, you know. And I could walk out going, oh, all right, the deacons approve of me and that sort of thing. Well, that's already upside down because that's not how deacons biblically functioned in terms of the biblical office. Um, we, you know, they were, in, in essence, working like overseers. Um, but we established elders, so now I've, you know, we worked the... Um, with the church, I took three years to kind of introduce the idea, um, you know, seed it with the congregation, get the deacons and deaconesses on board, uh, and then we established elders, and the church affirmed that. And then it took us a year to kind of fill that office out, and so I had three, um, you know, co-pastors now. Well, the dynamic now changed between me and the deacons because I'm not going to them going, 
you know, please, sir, may I have some approval, you know. Um, in a way, I was kind of going to the elders with that. I would show up at the elders meeting and go, hey, here's what I did for the, because they were all lay pastors. And I'd be like, here's what I've been doing for the last month, here, you know. And it wasn't necessarily for approval, it was just to keep them up to speed, get their insights, all that sort of thing. But I guess if I was looking for some kind of approval or validation, it would have been with them. The dynamic changed with the deacons, and some of them did not like that at all, that I wasn't somehow coming in with kind of my hat in my hand anymore, but was actually coming in almost as a leader. Well, I had, I had acclimated them to an indecisiveness on my part. I need your approval to do this. I need your approval to do that. Um, and, and, you know, part of that was being new. Part of it was being young. Um, part of it was just wanting people to like me. Um, but I actually acclimated them to a kind of... Um, indecisiveness that then came back to bite me when I decided to suddenly be a leader in the room. Um, it created a kind of tension. So you need to be aware of that. People acclimate to your leadership style. Uh, but if you become someone who is appropriately decisive, not reactionary, but appropriately decisive, like it doesn't take you weeks, months to make the decisions that everybody sees as a decision that needs to be made. Um, if it doesn't take you forever because of everything you're trying to, every contingency you're trying to um, you know, shore up, uh, people will acclimate to that as well. They'll get to trust you. Hey, we can go to this person. He knows what to do. She knows what to do. Um, you, you know, she'll help us make the dis- decision. So pray a lot. Mull over these decisions. Consult with other people. Get outside wisdom. Research as much as you need to. Whatever you need to do, think, think, think. But remember that passivity is, um, is a part of the original sin. And don't be afraid of, uh, of, of making mistakes. You're, you're going to make them anyway. Um, even if you take a long time to make them. <laughs> um, so if, if your church has affirmed you to lead, then lead. The grace of Christ frees you to operate freely. Uh, secondly, um, gospel-driven leaders take responsibility. They take responsibility, not just in making decisions, but when things uh, do not go as planned. Bad leaders blame shift. Good leaders take responsibility. If you're happy to receive credit when things go right, but you're always passing the buck when things go wrong, you have implicitly prioritized your glory over the Lord's. Uh, None of us likes to um, lead other people who are making excuses constantly, right? That's really a bummer. So why would we engage in this practice ourselves? If we want others to be responsible for their decisions, we have to set the tone with the ownership of ours. There is nothing anybody can say about us that will nullify God's approval of us in Jesus. So we don't need to be afraid to confess sin. We don't need to be afraid to accept the fault that belongs to us. We don't need to be afraid to self-evaluate when those that we're leading begin to reproduce our, our bad habits or our deficiencies. And we don't need to be afraid of others evaluating us as well. Uh, thirdly, humility. Humility. Uh, not only is humility a great adornment to Christian leadership, without it, ministry leaders disqualify themselves. Right? Love is not proud. Love is not arrogant. So the gospel-centered leader, out of love for people, does not need to exert control of them, doesn't need to vilify them or dress them down when they make mistakes or to condemn them when they sin or to denigrate them when they don't measure up in any regard. Um, It's good to keep an eye on, um, this is very specific, but in in, in leadership culture, there's very often a kind of sizing up of each other. Um, 
This is something I, I've had to learn coming to the, into a seminary context or, or just reaching a certain age. So, I'm, you know, I'm not old, but I'm older. And I still try to re- interact, especially with young folks, especially young men, uh, as if I'm just one of them. And it's not, I don't mean like I'm, I'm the cool dad. I just mean like sarcasm is kind of a love language for guys of my generation, at least. And I think it is for younger people, too, but among their own peer group. So if I'm being sarcastic with a young guy, it's actually my way of saying I like you. But what I have learned is because of my position and because of my age, some of the younger guys that I interact with, they don't receive it that way at all. They receive it as, you know, Mr. Wilson is being snarky with me. He must, you know, uh, and I'm hurting feelings that I don't know that I'm, that I'm actually hurting. And it can actually it, it create um, uh, um, not a shame, but it just... Yeah, I'm just hurting feelings. Um, and I'm actually severing some relational ties because of sarcasm that I think is being endearing, where if it's with somebody who's a friend or a peer, I'm sarcastic with them. They don't receive it that way. It's just how we love each other. But we need to be careful within our own groups that um, how people receive things, particularly people who are in uh, positions, uh, quote unquote, under us, um, you know, the way that we speak to them. Uh, that we don't do so, you know, even unintentionally, that we don't do it in ways that shame them or hurt them uh, or make them feel less than or judged in, in, in some way. Um, and then the kind of sizing up that can happen, I, I think it can even happen in our kinds of churches as well. This is something I saw a lot in the attractional world, but I don't think it's just limited there, uh, which is essentially uh, to feel threatened by anyone who has gifts, <laughs> uh, particularly in leadership. Um, I was a part of a, you know, kind of attractional megachurch for almost 10 years in, in Nashville where um, I began to lead the young adult ministry. Um, and I wondered for a while, when we first started attending, we were there for several years, um, and I was, you know, serving in a lay capacity for a while, teaching classes and things. Um, I wondered, like, why are we going through a youth pastor, like, every year and a half? Like, this is a big church. We've got, it seems, it seems like we would, you know, pay these guys well. And, um, and like, associate, like, teaching pastors. We're going through teaching pastors like crazy. And. On, on one level, what I learned was like our church is kind of a stepping stone for, for guys that are like, hey, I'll go to this big church in Nashville, but really what I'm trying to do is get to the really big church in you know, Chicago or whatever it is. There was kind of that, but I also, the more I learned, I, I, um, the, the pastor who was a very dynamic, um, you know, catalytic type guy was threatened by anyone who seemed to be kind of rivaling him for attention and, and, and devotion in the church. Um, and I, I learned this later on that most of those folks he would run out as they kind of got more popular because he saw them as threats. Um, you know, obviously for a lot of us, our kind of dynamic doesn't play out at that scale necessarily, um, but it can still sometimes play out where we see, you know, the guy that you bring in, you know, um, you know to preach every now and again, he actually has some gifts. He's actually got some skills and he gets compliments, right? Um, and, you know, sometimes the compliments is just because he doesn't preach all the time. They, they take you for granted because you're always preaching. Um, it's not necessarily that he's better than you. He's just, they want to encourage him. But you take it as kind of like, oh, man, he's maybe, maybe they want him instead of me. Maybe, they, you know, and you begin to get a little self-conscious. That can play out on any level of leadership as well. Um, we, we need to have a, a mentality that, um, that uh, Jesus' church is Jesus' church. And that uh, he gives people gifts for the building up of the church, not for your reputation, not for your platform, not for your esteem. Um, you know, and uh, when, when people are um, successful, when people are gifted, um, in, 
either more gifted than we are or gifted in, uh, in ways that we are not, um, we should be happy about that. Um, the Lord has given him those gifts uh, to build up the church. And so that's an asset, actually, to us. And if we're set on the glory of Christ and the good of the church, we'll see it as a win when people are more talented than us and more gifted than us. We won't see ourselves as the end-all, be-all. We'll have a humility uh, about it. Uh, number four, delegation. Delegation. Um, power hunger doesn't always look like arrogance and abuse. Sometimes it looks like fear and passivity. So the leader who is confident in the gospel will free others to lead according to their gifts and maturity. The leader who is trying to do everything himself or herself, without, um, whether out of personal control or quality control, so to speak, um, usually has an idolatry problem. So equipping and releasing others to help is part of the remedy. The body is made up of parts, remember, and the Lord's numerous gifts to the church exist to make sure the glory goes to him and not to individual leaders. One of the most important components of Christian leadership, in fact, is the passing of the baton to others, a developing and empowering of others to replicate and increase the work that we are doing. It's another thing uh, I learned from Ray Ortland, and at some point you're going to go, why don't we just have Ray Ortland here instead of this guy who's just given us warmed over? Uh, I say that to my ministry residents, actually, like, night one of our group meetings, I was like, guys, I'm just going to let you know, you're getting Ray Ortland microwave stuff, you know, meals is what you're getting. That's really all this is. Uh, and I remember once, oh, man, this is going to, uh, I was speaking at Downline, you know about Downline, right, Ben? Downline Ministries. I was speaking at a Downline Ministries event and, um, with uh, uh, um, Mark Dever and Tim Keller, and they had us on this stage. We had, like, it was like eight-minute talks or something like that. It wasn't, like, a big plenary deal. It's like these little eight-minute things. And they had us on these little couches, and I have this photo. Um, I, don't, I didn't ask him, but I, I, what was in his head? As each guy is talking, you, there's a photo of the rest of us behind. So there's a, there's a photo of me like at one of these deals like, you know, talking, and Tim Keller sitting on the couch there behind. And I was like, I wonder what he's thinking hearing me just sort of replicate a bunch of Keller stuff. That, you know? That's like all I was doing was just like, um, like warmed over Tim Keller. So like nothing is really um, original to us anyway. Uh, we're all standing on the shoulders of, of, of others. Um, we can share the load. We can give to others um, you, know, the, the, you know, the things that have been handed down to us because we didn't invent this thing. And even any ways that we can articulate this that can be helpful, um, we, we should see as, as a resource to the wider church. So one of the things that Ray taught me was just you, you start passing the baton as early as you can. Um, the succession plan at Emmanuel Church, um, where he's not the lead pastor anymore, uh, was very deliberate, meticulous, and, and one of the uh, great succession plans that, that I'm aware of in terms of um, keeping the same DNA of the church and even the, the culture of the church. And it was because Ray began thinking really early on, like, I'm not going to be here forever, and I shouldn't wait till oh, maybe I should retire next year to begin thinking about who comes in next. And it made me start thinking about, gosh, you know, you know I'm in my mid-40s, um, so like, I'm, not, I'm not quitting anytime soon, but how can I equip the next generation? This was at, you know, actually helped me in kind of getting out of the kind of ministry identity funk that I was in coming out of pastoral ministry to go to the seminary, which I sort of saw as less than kind of when I went, but now began to think, man, I actually have an opportunity to kind of pour into the next generation what a better legacy that is of just having guys who can benefit from whatever the Lord has taught me um, than it would be to have some kind of, you know, um, 
you know, upfront sort of, you know, ministry position or anything like that. Um, what can you do, whatever your age, whatever your position, what can you do to, to equip others to come up behind you or to come alongside you? How can you be, um, in the business world, sometimes they say, like, work yourself out of a job, right? Like, you know, um, train others in such a way that they're going to replace you. That's sort of a generous way. Um, we can think that way in ministry as well. Um, how do we train, you know, others um, into our own role, into our own position? Um, and in a way, this is what, um, you know, Paul is getting at. Uh, he says to his young people, you have many guides in the faith, but few fathers, and I think, man, there's a lot of talking heads out there, you know. Um, I'm not as smart as them, uh, so I don't think I could ever, like, compete as a talking head. But um, there's guys in my church that are looking for spiritual fathers. I could do that. I don't, I don't have to be the smartest guy in the room to just love somebody well and invest in them and, um, and, and give them what I got, such as it is, right? Um, and you can do that as well, right, to look at discipleship as a way of passing the baton um, and and as, a, as a form of delegation, actually, to increase the work that you're doing by being able to maximize the opportunities that others have around you. Don't be afraid to delegate to others. Think of it, in fact, as an essential of, of good leadership. You can't and shouldn't be doing it all. And if you're struggling to find others to whom you might delegate some work, it might mean either that the work itself isn't that, all that necessary, uh, or at least not the scale from which you're trying to carry it out, or that you need to implement some processes to develop other leaders to help carry the load. Uh, when we first started our ministry residency um, at Liberty Baptist, uh, we took some, some guys from the outside. And, you know, they were somewhat unknown quantities. Uh, um, you know, we um, assess them. They have an there's a, you know, application process. We interview them. It's not like, you know, they just say, I want to come. And we go, okay. But they're different from the guys we knew internally, right? So there were three guys we took from the outside um, and uh, um, who, you know, who we didn't know. Success stories, because two of them became elders in our church. Um, the uh, third guy um, was our youth guy uh, for a while. And even the, the guy who became our music, uh, our director of worship, young guy, I mainly wanted him to be the residency because he was moving from Vermont. And I just kind of was like, oh, I want the Vermont guy. He may be a turd, but he's from Vermont, so... We're going to take him anyway. Um, and he, you know, it's a good thing he wasn't a turd, actually. Um, so he became our worship leader. And then uh, a few months ago, he was in the, the round of new additions to the elder board. So, like, he and I are coming, like, he went through the residency. I'm, like, training him for pastoral, you know, pastoral ministry. And then we're both being evaluated at the same time to become pastors to the church. And I just remember sitting next to him and, and thinking, like, hey, look at us, man. Right? The, the teacher and the pupil becoming elders at the same time. Right? Like, how cool is that? And I just, you know, I could have looked at it as like, huh, you know, I'm a little more than this guy. I was like, I was in ministry before this guy was born, you know, or something stupid like that. Uh, but instead I was like, man, how neat is this? Um, and, and I, you know, I think that's only um, a graciousness that the Lord could have given me. Um, because I think years ago I would not have had that feeling. I, I don't think I would have had that experience. I would have felt like, huh, well, I'm more, you know, advanced than this guy. Why are we, you know? Um, but it was such a great thing to celebrate and, and, and to enjoy. And even actually to see guys before I became an elder, to see guys that I had trained become elders that I'm now in submission to, um, I was like, that's pretty neat, actually, you know? Um, it's a good thing to share your wisdom, to share your training, um, and to share your work with others. Um, 
Many hands make for light work. 